What's up, gang? Thanks for listening to the Undiplomatic Podcast, the show with undiplomatic takes about the foreign policy scene. I'm your host, Van Jackson. And today we've got Gabby Magnuson. Hey. Alex Audie. Good day. Celia McDowell. Hi. And Hunter Marston. Hey, hey. So just two quick hits before we get into everything. One, this is becoming like a recurring theme, tragically. Uh, Senator Joe Manchin, enemy of all things progressive at this point, he, he voted with Republicans to block $4 billion for a UN climate fund and divert it to Pentagon R&D, to uh, DARPA. And Senator Tom Cotton, who's, um, you know, a mega conservative, he argued specifically that this needed to happen because we needed the money to fight China, right? So last year, Joe Manchin also blocked Biden's Build Back Better legislation uh, because at the time he was saying we couldn't afford to do infrastructure investment because we needed the money to fight China and Russia, which is, of course, like bizarro logic, but whatever. So this is a, a pattern, right? And it reflects the military Keynesianism uh, bargain that Democrats have made for most of the past 70 years. So like the theory for Democrats is supposed to be that, uh, and this goes back to the early Cold War, they support high defense budgets. And in the modern context, they support China rivalry. They reiterate that rhetoric. They support that position. They validate it and legitimate it. And then in exchange, they're supposed to get public goods, right? Infrastructure, a welfare state. And the way this works out in practice, it's like the Republicans are fucking Lucy with the football and Charlie Brown. Like America's political economy has never, except for a couple rare moments, never really worked out this bargain the way Democrats think it's supposed to, right? Like we're the fucking suckers. Every We continuously go on to the Republicans' terrain. We accept their premises, and then they austeritize us. They say, well, we can't afford to do that shit, right? And so the public good stuff always gets fucking lopped off and narrowed, and then all we're left is with is this like military shit. And that's how we get the military Keynesian uber national security state where a Democrat, Biden, puts $813 billion down on the Pentagon more than even Trump, who was a hyper-militarist, right? So uh, it's it's tragic and upsetting, but it's like of a pattern at this point, right? So I just wanted to flag it because once again, this, this militarist mindset is contributing to an outcome that is ultimately really unstrategic, we're completely mismatched with the kinds of threats that we face. We are taking money away from dealing with the existential problem, the problem of our time, uh, and routing it toward this like ethno-nationalist boondoggle for on behalf of the Pentagon, right? Very problematic. Maybe for the listeners, where does this phrase uh, military Keynesianism come from? Is that is that your own creation? Uh, it's not my own creation. There's a guy, Michael Breens, who is at Yale. He had a book called For Might and Right, or For Might and For Right. But it was kind of about how the ever since the 1960s, in the midst of the Vietnam War, Democrats and Republicans established this bipartisan 
bargain for a national political economy that um, was built around the military industrial complex. And so it was using military spending as a way to uh, rate, uh, lower unemployment, a way to increase aggregate demand. Um, and it was completely, it was a sucker move because ultimately it created conditions to embrace neoliberalism and to gut the welfare state and to disempower unions. So like it put Democrats on a terrain where they had to constantly like sacrifice their side of shit. But the military stuff always stayed very buoyant, right? So that's what military Keynesianism yielded. But the first time I saw the term was in that guy's book. Um, and it floats around on the left, too. Like, I've seen other people use it, too. So it's not mine, unfortunately. Cool, cool. So second quick hit. Maybe it's a longer hit. I don't know. Uh, Hunter flagged a story that Politico ran about the Biden administration's China strategy and it quoted an anonymous China expert close to the administration saying that, quote, the China strategy is basically Trump plus with sophistication and allies and partners. Right. And I think some people saw this and viewed the quote kind of innocently or like, well, yeah, it's Trump plus and more sophisticated. What's wrong with that? This is a fucking broken system. So first, there, I have two points on this, um, and I have a feeling Hunter has something to say, too. First, Trump's China policy, it was reductive. It was based on some like really shaky assumptions, and it was, of course, horribly executed. Even fans of confrontation thought it was horribly executed, right? There was never really a China strategy beyond investing all your resources and all your chips into zero-sum gaming this other great power, right? And looking back, it's not even clear that we achieved anything positive. Like, we didn't really cut off China's influence, right? We shit the bed on Hong Kong. We shit the bed on Xinjiang. We made ourselves unbelievably unpopular. We made Taiwan into even more of a pawn than it was, right? And mostly, like, we just inflamed rivalry in arms racing. And so, like, the idea that the Biden administration should do that China policy, but then add even more, even more to the defense budget and then call it a day, like, it's so intellectually bankrupt, right? It shows how captive D.C. is to groupthink and fads and fucking Republican talking points. Like, the foreign policy apparatus of the Democratic Party is in shambles intellectually. It's compromised intellectually, right? Like to do a Trump plus China policy in the context of Republican vote rigging at home, conspiracy theories, the hate mongering, in the context of a worsening oligarchy at home, Biden's foreign policy people are making themselves into nothing more than caretakers for some future far-right government with like an ethno-nationalist anti-China project. It's fucking sad, right? So I said on Twitter, like, my mission in life is to make Democrats think for themselves again about foreign policy and stop being fucking losers who just copy and paste Republican homework. Be strategic, right? Recognize when you're on a path that's counterproductive. But like, even more than that, just recognize when you're doing dirt on behalf of this like fascist cadre within the GOP, right? The Dems are doing their bit to make dystopia 
for all of us, uh, and we got to we got to fix it. But the second point on this is that for people who are not aware, there's an inner circle of think tank pundits in D.C., uh, scholars even, who are mostly conservative. They're people who are, are funded by defense contractors, and they include people at Heritage and at AEI, which are both conservative think tanks, right? They get draft previews of internal Biden administration strategy documents before they're ever released. They get, they get a pre-consultation, right? It's part of like a socialization strategy, like to get internal buy-in. Um, and so if you wonder why, and other administrations did this too, but we're in a new era, obviously, right? But I raise it because if like you wonder why Biden's foreign policy is so same, same with Trump and so frozen and unmoved by the like radically changing political situation at home and abroad, uh, some of the reason for that stasis is because the people being consulted on the strategies, it's the same old crowd of unaccountable group thinky elites on the take, you know? How do I know this? Because I was one of those insiders until I started speaking critically about the Biden administration's position on things. And you're not allowed to fucking do that if you're an insider. Is it one of those things where the administration kind of like hears buzzwords and they're like, yeah, 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 go, <laughs> go listen to this guy. He's hitting like the right stuff. Is it a lot of that or is it more just like... It's not, well, it depends on how well the buzzwords fit with their priors or with what everyone else right. thinks. Like people don't like to get into fights or disagreements. It's much easier bureaucratically and intellectually to just copy and paste from other people, you know, it's, okay. it's to go with the, go with the current. And there's a tradition too, a generation long tradition of Democrats seeing a virtue in national security bipartisanship. And that's not a virtue anymore. It's not a virtue when the other side is completely fucking untethered from democracy, you know? Um, you're, you're engaged in a hyper-militarist project at that point. Um, and so that's like okay. something we have to be aware of that we are not used to being aware of, what, at least the insiders, you know? You know, I think my overriding takeaway here is that the imbalance in US-Asia strategy remains fundamentally the same. Um, and this, I think, persists from the Obama administration's pivot or rebalance, uh, which ultimately ended up focusing on the security posture in the region above and beyond uh, trade policy. Yeah. Unfortunately, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which was sort of the economic pillar uh, component of the rebalance, ended up falling through because I think the Obama administration, in a nutshell, sort of ended up lending uh, too little too late uh, in, in terms of political capital to get that across the finish line. Um, but that aside, the Trump administration, I think, exacerbated this imbalance, as you and I have written about, in in terms of uh, focusing exclusively on the military dimension in containing, checking China's rise, and obviously adding a lot of sort of racialized uh, clash of civilizations narrative to that, uh, a theme we've spoken on before. Um, and then essentially neglecting entirely uh, the U.S. economic strategy or statecraft in the region, which is really what uh, Asian partners want. I mean, I'm sort of separating out the developed economies of Northeast Asia to a point, uh, although Japan 
certainly was a prominent advocate of U.S. participation in the CPTPP. Um, but if you look at Southeast Asia, right, these countries don't want exactly um, increased U.S. military presence, or, and they certainly don't want that alone because it's seen as uh, inherently destabilizing if it's absent an economic engagement strategy. And so economic engagement, which the U.S. does well in terms of private sector activity in the region, the U.S. remains the largest provider of foreign direct investment in Southeast Asia, for instance, but without a free trade deal, a multilateral platform to embed the U.S. in the region and allow it to set rules and norms, uh, you know, it just looks like it's there to provide a military check against China, which is unappealing to partners because then it puts them in an awkward position. Um, and so I think that this China strategy, as Blinken was supposed to outline in a speech at George Washington University, which actually didn't happen because he got COVID, so we don't really know what's going to come of it. Yeah. Uh, but essentially, to describe this uh, new China strategy as Trump plus sophistication and allies and partners, you know, A, I think it's a terrible way to frame the strategy because you always want to differentiate your strategy from your predecessors. Yeah. But uh, B, it just fundamentally reifies that imbalance that I'm getting at. It's all security and no trade. Um, and right now, ASEAN partners are in Washington for this uh, US ASEAN special summit. The Biden administration said it was going to unveil this Indo-Pacific economic framework sometime in May. It's continuous, uh, continually postponed that. Uh, so really ASEAN partners have no economic component to latch onto. And what they're left with is probably, I mean, we'll see what comes of this, but you know, how can we enlist partners in our strategy to contain China and push back against Russian aggression, which is not something that um, partners in Asia universally support? Yeah. I mean, my, I think if you don't have a theory of political economy, you can't actually have a strategy. You can have militarism, you can have cheap talk, you can have fluff. You can't have a strategy if you don't have a, a perspective on political economy even if it's a bad one, like even if you're just pure neoliberal or whatever, at least you've got, say, what is it? The fucking big Lebowski thing. Like say what you will about the tenets of national socialism. At least it's an ethos. There's like a little bit of yeah. that there, you know, like at least the neoliberals have a fucking perspective, you know, these guys don't have anything. Oh, I was just wondering, like, have they like changed the rhetoric around it at all to make it seem like it's this whole new strategy instead of just copying what's been done before? The rhetoric is more restrained. Mm -hmm. I mean, like the quote the from Poli yeah the 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 quote from Politico mentioned that it was like Trump plus and more sophisticated, and that sophisticated part is supposed to be a gesture toward like we're so much more competent and coherent than those guys. What they're really talking about, though, I think, is like it's there's just they're not it's not the fire and fury gratuitous. You know, we're going to set the world on fire like Biden's rhetoric is just so dialed in and restrained, but it's also very just pure fluff. Like it, 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 it's very much throwback to like the Obama years, which, you know, some of us would like to like go relive those moments, but it's just a different environment, you know, a different world. So like a lot of the rhetoric is more Obama-y, but in a context where it doesn't quite make sense anymore. Old wine, new cask. Yes. So what's this next segment called? True or false? <laughs> Who's got it? <laughs> Every, uh, two lies and a truth. All right. All Sometimes right. I, I read the prompts that like Jake sets up and I'm like, oh, 
he definitely wrote this. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> cool, cool, cool. So here is, so I'll start with the first one. Following the recent electoral success of the son of Philippine dictator Ferdinand Marcos, Alessandra Mussolini announces her rerun in the Italian general election in 2023. Question number two, oh, statement number two. Poland announces a general amnesty for Russian and Belarusian political refugees. And three, the United Kingdom signed security declarations with both Sweden and Finland among talks of both nations joining the NATO alliance. Hot takes. Can you tell which one's true? Wait, it's two true and one false, right? Two lies, one true. Uh, I got it backwards when I was listening <laughs> to it. <laughs> so the, the first one I'm almost certain is false. Like Mussolini's kids, not. Yeah. Rerunning for the Italian general election. Okay. Okay, so that's false. What was the third one? Uh, the UK signs security declarations with both Sweden and Finland among talks of both nations joining the NATO alliance. So this is hot and brewing, and there are talks, <laughs> and the UK is talking with Sweden and Finland. I'm going to say it's false though, because I don't know that there's been something signed. Oh. But there has been. Oh, no. Oh, we finally got it. First, ah. first, first time getting got. Okay. Well done. <laughs> the UK has been signing security what, what declarations. Was, so the false one was the second one, which was about... Uh, Poland announces a general amnesty for Russian and Belarusian political refugees. So that's not true. Yeah. Okay. Well, it had <laughs> my streak had to end at some point. Okay. <laughs> This one was tough, though. Like, when I was reading it uh, the first time, I was genuinely like, wait, which one was the true one? Well, it definitely wasn't the Mussolini one, but... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Time for Stay Off Twitter, where we curate the best and worst of Twitter so that you don't have to. Um, so for Stay Off Twitter this week, I just have one... From Max Abrams, who's a professor, he specializes in counterterrorism stuff, um, and he he just says about uh, the MAGA new right guy, J.D. Vance, who is running for Senate in Ohio. He won the primary, and he won it by, like, emulating Trump. He's the infamous guy who wrote Hillbilly Elegy, but then turned far right and became, like, a full-on MAGA shithead, whatever. Uh, but... He says about J.D. Vance's win in Ohio, he goes, J.D. Vance's win will only reinforce the alignment of foreign policy restrainers and the GOP, while the Democratic Party will become even more the party of war. This is an interesting take. It's one that is not super like funny, and I don't even think it's actually true necessarily, but it, it was it's interesting food for thought. Um, a misread here that I think he's making, which is common is to think that the new right, MAGA right, are not militarists. The, the, to think that they're restrainers because they don't want to go after Putin or something, right? And that's not the case at all, right? We've talked about this a few weeks ago on the pod. The far right is super militarist, and their project of militarism is just like laser focused on yellow and brown people. So it's got Iran in their crosshairs, and it's got China in their crosshairs, and it's got marginal and minority communities in the U.S. in their crosshairs, right? Uh, and the domestic and the international are connected, right? They don't want to, to reduce the defense budget. 
They don't want to take their eye off of China rivalry. They don't want to end the relationship between the military and the militarization of the police. They don't want to break that culture of, of bro culture of like the militarization of the police, right? They don't want to end the national security surveillance state. So like the new right is not, or the far right, whatever you want to fucking call them, they're not restrainers, you know? They're restrainers on the specific case of Putin and on the in the case of nation building. So like, you know, endless projects like Afghanistan. But that's it. They're willing to drop bombs on anybody, including their own people, Americans, you know? And the part that is like more true is that, so the GOP is not going to become the party of restraint. I don't see that happening. They're becoming militarists, even more so. The Democratic Party is the de facto party of war at this point because they've allowed themselves to be defined in relation to the Republicans as like the more, you know, moderate, competent version of Republicans on, on foreign policy in particular. And this is, of course, a losing hand. We've talked about this uh, many times. But they've also, the Democrats, like a lot of neocons who were the uberhawks who got us into the Iraq war, a lot of neocons have left the Republican Party and are now like praising and cheering Biden. And they're part of the group that consults on the Biden strategy documents and stuff. And like the neocons have started drifting into the Republican Party even more than they were before. And so like I think the part that might be true here is that the Democrat Democratic Party is becoming more and more the party of war. But it's like the Terminator thing, no fate, but what we make, you know, um, the Democratic Party actually has internal contestation. It depends on who the standard bearer of the party is, who's the leader at any given moment. Right. I would like to think that 2024, if Biden doesn't run, there's going to be some like serious progressive energy for a different kind of Democratic Party. That's what I'm banking and hoping on. And that's what my existence is basically tied to at this point. So we'll see, like right now, the Democrats do look like the party of war. I think he's right about that. But it was just an interesting tweet, like a lot of uh, food for thought here. So Van, real quickly, I know you just said all your hopes banking on, you know, <laughs> that. Is that actually going to happen, you reckon? Do you think there's any perspectives that you're like, oh, this will... There are a bunch of progressive, like, politicos who are positioning themselves to run for president in 2024... Uh, if Biden doesn't run, Bernie has not ruled it out. It's a possibility, even though he's, you know, obviously of a very advanced age at this point. Um, is he older or younger than Biden? I don't know, but he's fucking old. If I'm being honest, <laughs> you know, um, Rokana is young and Rokana has been positioning himself to get that big tech money. Um, and he's a restrainer on foreign policy. Like he's, uh, aligned with the justice Democrats. Uh, I've heard some stuff about like AOC possibly, even though like a lot of people hate her. So there, and Warren is the, uh, overturning of Roe versus Wade has like really energized Warren. Um, so it's not impossible that she comes through, you know, it all depends on whether Biden decides to run or not in 2024. I can't see him running again personally. Yeah. He's, I mean, what will his uh, stump speeches sound like at that point? Yeah, seriously. All right, so that's the only tweet I've got this week. Uh, yeah, so the first one is from Nick Bisley, who's the Dean of Humanities and Social Sciences at La Trobe in Australia. 
Um, and so his tweet is just commenting on a uh, Australian Financial Review piece, kind of going over the whole Solomon Islands st- stuff that's been going on for the last like month or so. Mm-hmm. We've talked about it in the last few episodes, I think. Um, and so he's basically saying, so the piece is saying that for two generations since the end of World War Two, Australia has gone to the chance to build deep and enduring relations with neighbours in the South Pacific. And his comment is that tragedy is that experts in the region have been saying this for decades and roundly ignored by the elites and a hideous blend of ignorance, complacency and paternalism. When I first saw this, it triggered some thoughts of agreement and I can't think of them now. All I can say is like, yes. Yeah. The only thing I, I would add now, um, you know, having had some conversations over recent weeks uh, with friends in Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, DFAT here, is that I think this is very well understood at the sort of um, staff level uh, below the politicos and um, political leadership. It's just that it's never been a priority for a federal government in Australia, unfortunately. Um, And I think that paternalism really is what endures here. So you don't see uh, outreach based on the interests of Solomon Islands or of Pacific Island states, uh, which would really reinforce some goodwill for Australia. Unfortunately, it's you know, just not um, on the agenda. But I think, you know, given the recent kerfuffle over the Solomon Islands, perhaps it's a wake-up call and, you know, like this message says, too little, too late. That I mean, that's what gives the game away, right? The paternalism. How would you know that you're just being paternalistic, which is to say uh, hierarchical, marginalizing, right? You're basically exploiting a situation. You're treating them as pawns and objects. How would you know that that's the case? Well, one way that you would know is that you don't do a fucking thing for this country. And then when something happens, when they do their own shit that you don't like, you fucking freak out and act like they shouldn't have any right to do that. And it's a failure that this has happened. Like that's a bad fucking sign, you know? Uh, it's it's an indicator of your, the blind spots in being paternalistic, in treating them as if they were some kind of de facto colony. And I I saw like some people being like, well, what about what about Ramsey? What about what about the Australian mission to the Solomon Islands to like help stabilize the situation when there was civil unrest before a few years back? And it's like that was a military operation to do nothing more than introduce stability and the money that flowed to the Solomon islands for Ramsey was overwhelmingly and some like um, very smart scholars in Australia have been the ones to point this out. The money for this mission was overwhelmingly used to pay Australian salaries. It didn't do anything for the country. It just kept them out of a fire out of like, it's like putting out the fire, but not addressing the conditions that gave rise to the fire in the first place. And so like, that's the best that's happened. And it just, it's, it's when you've got outside powers doing this firefighter thing and they think that's their role, it allows them to act like they're the heroes of the situation, but actually they're just helping perpetuate a situation that's inherently fragile and precarious. And it, it, it cripples the ability to actually address root problems, right? And so like all of that is downstream of relating to them as a people with whom you have solidarity. This notion of a Pacific family is completely false, self-flattering bullshit. 
It shouldn't be. It should be real. But to be real, you'd have to you'd have to make evidence of it over decades, right? You can see evidence of real relationships, of solidarity over time, not because you brought a suitcase full of money, not because you sent troops one time. Like, that's not solidarity. That is paternalism. Okay, so I guess I thought I, I had a little something to say on this, but... <laughs> um. So the next two tweets kind of go together, which yeah. is kind of funny because they got submitted by two different members of the crew. Uh, so the first tweet is from Don Lewis, who is was related to the whole Rudy Giuliani and Ukraine situation. Um, so his tweet is, In light of tonight's Rovis Wade news, Handmaid's Tale should be mandatory viewing for all before the midterms. And then the uh, next tweet from Cora Harrington is that so many people citing The Hunger Games and The Handmaid's Tale today forgetting the meta-critique of both books is that they are founded on the conceit of, uh, concept of what if we treated white people the way we already treated people of color. Yeah, so um, the the overturning of Roe versus Wade, like it's, it's an attack on feminism and it's an assertion of patriarchy, right? Um, and patriarchy is part of white supremacy, there's not like some gender blind version of white supremacy. And so these things, as, especially as experienced historically, like they go together. So when you see a moment like this, I mean, first of all, the right has been building toward this for decades. It's not like it's been a fucking secret, you know, like that's why they're obsessed with the Supreme Court because they want to overturn shit like Roe versus Wade. They probably want to overturn fucking Brown versus Board of Education, right? Desegregated schools. So like, they, when they do this, right, you should turn to f- dystopian fiction as a guide, like among with uh, alongside history. Like, I think it's totally important to remind ourselves about how dark this shit can get, right? We just baby stepped a little bit more toward Handmaid's Tale as our reality, right? So, let's get that reminder because it should galvanize us, you know? Um, at least like the negative motivation right, to protect what rights we've gained, what progress we've gained. But then like uh, this, the second tweet, the rejoinder from this uh, Cora Harrington, it's absolutely true that the fear of being, having your like reproductive rights reproduced or uh, surveilled, right. And policed, and to be on, like, to have to be a criminal to make your own choices with your life. And the that process, which is targeting women now, uh, it doesn't stop at women. And what people are seeing is how black and brown communities are already treated, right? There's some other good sub-threads to this one, pointing out examples of how what people are afraid of happening to women are, is what's been going on in the hood for a long time. The thing that bugs me, about, like this is a good insight, the thing that bugs me about the way the tweet is phrased is, is like it's anti-solidarist. Like, I'm not a woman, you know? I don't, like, it. I'm not going to be getting an abortion in my lifetime, you know? But these struggles are all connected because the end game for the far right is all connected and they lose when we are in solidarity across struggles, 
right? When we have different fights that we recognize are connected and that unifies us, that's how we form a block that has more votes than them, that can bring more pressure to bear than they can. And that's how we get change, right? The, the civil rights movement and the nuclear freeze movement were connected in the anti-Vietnam War movement and the ecological movement and the original first two waves of feminism movements. Those were all connected, but they're all, they, they were their own siloed issues, but we made progress on one that helped us make progress on the other. Like the tactics of civil rights in the South, boycotts and stuff, was what was brought into nuclear abolition and free speech movements and the anti-Vietnam War movements. Like, it's not just that, like, we cooperated together across struggles. We, we couldn't have advanced one without advancing the other. And so that works in reverse, too. When we have one form of social progress challenged, it's going to hurt other forms of social progress. First, they come for the women, right? Or first, they come for the black and brown communities. Then they come for the women. That's kind of where we're at now. Next, it's going to be the fucking Asians and the Jews and the communists, right? And the so, which there aren't even fucking communists, the socialists, right? And so, like, that's how it works. That's fascism in action. So, we have to all see the connectedness of these issues and recognize that, like, an attack on women is an attack on us. You know, Handmaid's Tale, yes, but also recognize that like the thing that we're worried about here with overturning Roe versus Wade is the kind of thing in an existential level that pre-exists in certain parts of the United States, right? Um, which means we also have to stay united with Black Lives Matter and such, right? Um, so yeah, I thought these two tweets went together even though they were like antagonistic sort of. All right. For this week's armchair analysis, we've got a piece on CNN by Simone McCarthy called Why the Philippines Election Could Be a Win for China. So to contextualize here, uh, Philippines uh, just had an election, a uh, national election, and Marcos Jr., uh, familiarly known as Bong Bong, the son of a late dictator uh, Ferdinand Marcos, just won national elections. Um, you had lots of feels. You know, first things first, uh, the fact that the Philippines just elected the son of a dictator they ousted in 1986 uh, in a people power movement is remarkable. Um, and it's also troubling because Marcos Jr. has, I'm sorry if you're hearing a baby crying in the background, <laughs> baby just got home. Uh, anyways, you know, another reason we don't do a live podcast. Marcus Jr. has essentially whitewashed the history of uh, his father's rule over the country for several decades by uh, framing this election in terms of authoritarian nostalgia, harping on the economic growth, which is very arguable. Um, uh, historians have contested that. Yeah. Um, as well as the general stability that endured under Marcos Sr.'s rule. Um, and the kleptocracy and, and uh, you know, the erosion of rule of law during that time were what led to the Marcos ouster and the people power movement that, uh, you know, brought about Philippine democracy. Uh, so it's shocking that the country would go and elect the dictator's son, who's now trying to recast his father's rule in such 
uh, flowery um, uh, positive terms. Yeah. Um, but you know, so apps are separating the sort of democratic erosion we're seeing ongoing. I think it's important to say first off that Marcos's election victory, the margin of votes, is very significant and and much wider than uh, Duterte's election. So analysts were, you know, sort of taken aback by Duterte's election in 2016. Uh, at the time, Duterte won high 30%, 38% or something of the votes. Um, and, in you know, we've talked about this before, but the Philippines electoral system, you don't need a majority of votes. You only need a plurality. Yeah. Uh, so it ends up forming governments that aren't hugely representative of the people. Uh, Marcos Jr., by contrast, I think won um, uh, nearly 60% of the vote. So not not quite double that of Duterte, but it's a clear election. Um, you know, uh, he really picked up enough votes to make this a convincing election win. Well, it's worth mentioning um, too, like it was a neck and neck-ish race until he took on Duterte's mm-hmm. daughter as vice president. Right. And that was when yeah, the lead yeah. jumped. That's right. So Sarah Duterte is the vice president. She also won the commanding share of votes, you know, getting over the shock. We have to acknowledge that Philippine voters did vote overwhelmingly for Marcus Jr. It's their election. It's not my place to criticize their choice. Uh, But that aside, you know, a lot of the articles we're seeing come out of Western media like CNN tend to frame this in terms of, um, I was going to say Duterte's foreign policy, uh, Marcos Jr.'s uh, foreign policy and leaning toward China which I think is a bit premature. Uh, Marcus Jr. did not participate in many election debates, and he hasn't given a ton of interviews to indicate what his foreign policy might look like. So I think this reflects a bit of Washington's angst over Southeast Asian elections these days with the China framing dominating um, discussion here. But on that note, I would emphasize, we actually don't know much about his foreign policy. He's sort of presented a mixed package of policies uh, like Duterte did before coming to power. But if we look back over past uh, Philippine presidencies um, from the 90s, you have Gloria Arroyo, who came to power uh, supporting the U.S. um, uh, occupation of Iraq and military invasion, um, sending Philippine troops and personnel there. And then towards the end of her uh, administration um, in the mid 2000s, actually being much closer to China, you have. Uh, Benino Aquino, her successor, who was much more willing to have a pragmatic relationship with China early in his his administration. By the end of his term, he's aligned the Philippines very closely with Washington, signed an enhanced defense cooperation agreement. And then, of course, Duterte essentially bandwagoning uh, Manila with uh, Beijing, and then eventually slowly coming back around to the U.S. alliance. So my point is that we don't know what any Philippine leader is going to do based on sort of election rhetoric and what comes early on in the administration. It's still anyone's guess. What I would commend here, I want to give a shout out to a piece by Phil Hymans in Bloomberg. I only read this after selecting uh, this piece's armchair analysis. Um, But Phil's excellent piece, touches on the role of clans and power politics, political dynasties in shaping Philippine elections. So Marcus Jr. very skillfully managed to get the backing of important clans in Cebu and elsewhere to um, really guarantee his election outcome ahead of time. Uh, So shout out to Phil's piece, which I think captured a lot of the nuance going on behind the scenes and doesn't frame this discussion purely in terms of what will Marcos's China policy be, or what will he do with the U.S. alliance? 
um, I'll leave it at that. Lots more to discuss. I know a lot of media outlets are reporting and I've like seen it all over Twitter. I've seen it like splashed on like the news front pages uh, about confusion over how the Philippines like could, you know, as Hunter mentioned, like overwhelmingly have voted for Marcos, right? But I think something that also needs to be said is the difficulty in which a lot of areas of, for example, like Lenny supporters, because, you know, leading up to this election, there were like hundreds of, of thousands of people like flooding the streets. You were seeing pink everywhere. And not, that's not just, oh, as, you know, Manila, for, right? So uh, urban, yeah, Manila, middle class voters. Yeah. Yeah. Because, uh, yes, Marcos uh, definitely was influential in like the down south. Um, where it, it's a bit confusing, definitely, because the promise really lied in him. A lot of it was like, oh, you know that like 10 billion that we stole from like the Philippines, we're going to give it like back to you guys, right? Which it's kind of, you feel kind of like sad, like there's a level of pity where you're like, oh, he's really taking advantage of like people. But at the end of the day, your pity can only go so far because it's like, oh my God. Because like my parents kind of lived through this like sort of thing. A lot of areas in Manila, because Manila is very like densely populated as well. A lot of like my family friends I know were spending about, you know, six, seven hours like waiting in line for machines that weren't working. My mom never got like her ballot, for example, and a lot of like overseas because there's a lot of like uh, Filipino immigrants, for example, they haven't got their ballots either. Right. Which is kind of that was suspect. And then the way the graphs were because there's already like a lot of as Hunter mentioned like whitewashing of the history right like people are actually being fooled like grandmas who like lived through the dictatorship <laughs> my mom was telling me the story where you know they're like oh you know during like the dictatorship they were giving out like this kind of bread and now these grandmas want to be like oh we want to relive like this dictatorship period this propaganda bread you know by giving it to their children too and it's like that's fucking bonkers but yeah i feel like this a lot of like media outlets and stuff kind of show that oh man that's whack that like the philippines are all like a lot of filipinos are voting for uh marcos when in reality it's kind of like i don't know it's a lot of the voting is suspect i'm not just saying that because of my inclinations it's just kind of like no this is i i fucking i raised this on twitter and then i i deleted it because i delete a lot of the shit that I post on Twitter actually. But <laughs> I don't know like there's like an inner psychology there that I have not contemplated. But um <laughs> this was one of the things that I like posted oh, and deleted. But I, I think it's because like I didn't want it to be misinterpreted, but and it lent itself to misinterpretation. But like I've seen so many accusations of like vote rigging, that this not being a free and fair election, that there were malfunctions, that even if the process went smoothly there's so many votes that are unaccounted for still at a purely like administrative and clerical level that like it was just too soon to declare such a definitive win and the margin of victory became the excuse to do that. And so like I have no standing to be able to like adjudicate that stuff either way. So I'm just like, whatever. But the idea that it was a free and fair election seems like questionable and yet it's unsurprising to me that a majority would vote for a guy who is basically a strong man, a strong man with a legacy of authoritarian kleptocracy. I mean, like that, that is not surprising because like 
I think there's this confusion that like, well, if you have a large masses of poor people, that's where a revolution comes from. Or it's like people who are desperate are the ones who are going to go and demand change. That's not how it works at all. Bourgeoisie demand change. Like you get people to like comfortable and their bellies full, then they can seek more. Then they want to defend their rights more. It's when you're impoverished and you're without and you're in a desperate situation, which is what oligarchies create, right? You can't have the wealth of the 40 families in the Philippines unless you have large impoverished rural areas in the Philippines. Those things have to coexist. And this this is of a pattern with other countries, too, including the United States to a degree uh, in a different way. But like that dynamic cre is vulnerable to authoritarian demagoguery. It's vulnerable to exploitation of your like fond memories of the propaganda bread. Right. Dictatorships also deliver public goods. They just deliver them selectively and undemocratically. Right. And those public goods, the way they deliver them is strategic and for their personal enrichment. It feels like a little scary to me and tragic, but like not super surprising given the conditions that Duterte not just inherited, but like made worse. Right. The political economic terrain of the Philippines lends itself to this. And so the only way you can remedy this is by unfucking that. Right unkleptocratizing it, de-oligarchizing it, right? Um, and that's going to be really hard to do, particularly when we, in an economic order structured as it is, right? Which is why root causes have to go back to like, you have to have a theory of political economy. Got to have an argument there, right? Otherwise, it's just, this is going to keep kind of happening, right? If I don't, if you don't mind me asking this, just both for Van and Hunter, you know, as mentioned, they haven't really pulled through with like any prob uh, promises or like plans in terms of their like foreign policy. Just getting back to the original like, uh, sorry, article that we pitched. Um, so between like uh, Marco's presidency, uh, Duterte as his VP, you have a royal li literally like in the House of Representatives again. Mm. Like, do you see like any positives to this or like any inclinations about where they're going to go I know you said it's a bit like, but I don't know, the kind of people they're filling up with their government at the moment, it seems kind of intense. <laughs> I'm trying to think of like, is there any country in the world that is a kleptocracy that is against China? It's an open <laughs> question. It's a serious question, like open question. Yeah, yeah. But I, th I think sure. the answer is no, there's not. Everywhere there's a kleptocracy, they're on the take from China. Um, Van, I, I thought we were calling, um, or perhaps we were talking about oligarchy, but I, I thought we were referring to the United States as a kleptocracy uh, occasionally. <laughs> the problem is you can't, in the, in the modern system, the, you can't have an oligarchy without theft, like scale at scale, yeah. right? Um, you have to have illegal, illegal siphoning of money. Like oligarchy creates a system of corruption. It's the kleptocracy because like they conflate into each other at a certain point which is kind of where we are with the u.s now i like thinking of the olig of the u.s more as an oligarchy than a kleptocracy but there is a good book by sarah chase that just came out who had advised bernie i think for a little while 
And uh, she used to work for actually the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And she wrote a book about kleptocracy in Afghanistan and how that really fucked over our operations there. Um, but she just wrote a book about kleptocracy in America. And so um, she points out how that's very much the case. I feel like you get more explanatory leverage out of thinking of it as an oligarchy. But um, in any case, they coincide, you know. And the, the, so the 40 families thing in the Philippines is like the fact that you can have like a landed aristocracy that makes it oligarchic, <laughs> you know. And the fact that they have like legislative power on top of that oligarchy ruled by the rich few on behalf of the rich few. But yeah, like what Marcos's dad was doing was like at a scale of fucking graft that was just unbelievable. That was that was again, they shade into each other. Like that was pure kleptocracy, you know. So are we are we gonna go back to that since he won't apologize? I don't know. Well, I think we very much are, you know, not out of it yet. Um, so ironically, uh, I don't know if ironically is the right word, but uh, for whatever it's worth, uh, Marcos Jr. presently can't enter the United States because of ongoing mm -hmm. litigation over this uh, stolen funds, which is estimated, I think, at $10 billion. Um, yeah, $10 billion. <laughs> Some proportion of that is, I, I think, a U.S. district court has ruled has to be returned to the victims of the Marcos dictatorship. I'm not sure how the U.S. has legal jurisdiction, but you know that's well beyond my purview. Um, but because of this, Marcos Jr. can't actually travel to the United States. So his advisors have been very awkwardly dodging this question in uh, media interviews in the last couple of days. Mm. Uh, and what that means for the alliance is very unclear. But you know, it's expected that Marcos or Bong Bong will uh, end the investigation within the Philippines into where those missing funds went. Remarkable that that investigation is still ongoing. It's no no big mystery. His family had it. Uh, it's documented what assets the Marcoses, Amelda and Ferdinand, brought to the United States when they left uh, to Hawaii in 1986. Uh, you know, they it was recorded what they brought with them in terms of stock options and stocks, uh, as well as property uh, they owned in New York New York City, like uh, multiple skyscraper buildings. Uh, just outrageous. Yeah. Dude, the Marcos shit, the way the U.S. handled that is like so fucking upsetting. Yeah. Um, and it's it's going to get us sidetracked. I can't do it right now. But <laughs> yeah, um, fuck. Yeah, the Philippines situation is not good. But it's like, it's not like it's the only situation that's not good. Like elite unaccountability yeah. is also a feature of American political life. So like, it's hard to throw stones, you know. Anyways, good discussion. It was like this armchair analysis was more topical than it was about the piece per se, I suppose. Oh, the only thing I would add before we move on uh, to the next segment is that like this is a policy position thing. There's a lot that the U.S. can do to like create closer relations with the Philippines and to help the Philippines out of this political economic quandary. Like the Philippines has a lot of sovereign debt that the U.S. could forgive or restructure right uh it could there's there's a lot of shit that it could do strategically to help the philippines economically which would alleviate the the incentives to go toward dictators like this right um it's just that the u.s doesn't think like this so it's not doing it but the thing that i would be hard line on is like and this puts me on the opposite side of dc we cannot be selling arms and providing military assistance 
two oligarchs, two kleptocrats. And like that goes too far. And especially when they're diverting their national budget toward defense, when it could be allocated toward other things, it, it does harm to them. And we're selling them things that don't help them fight China. Like they get a couple short range missiles and a fucking a fighter, a squadron of fighters. Like they're not going to be able to defeat China in the South China Sea. I mean, like they're, the operational concept for like how we're arming the Philippines does not exist yet. It's not sufficient to justify what we're doing. And it's certainly not sufficient to justify selling weapons to dictators. So like it, it doesn't look good for Bong Bong because of who he is, but uh, as he be, as he proves himself to be the person that we all know he seems to be, we have to be prepared to suspend that. Right. And military assistance is a separate question technically from the Alliance. But there's a principle there and it's has strategic consequences. And so like that is something that I'm probably going to end up saying a lot more in the future because I think it's a valid mm. position, but nobody in DC stakes that out. Well, then, like, okay. sorry, Gabby. Um, I, I just want to push back on a couple points there. If you look at Duterte's budget, the military modernization that the Philippines has wanted to do for uh, some time since uh, Aquino hasn't really taken place. And instead, what you see actually was Duterte doubling the budget for infrastructure as part of his build, build, build program. It's like build back better, but just build, build, build. I love that I'm saying. Uh, yeah, but we, secondly, we created like $4 billion of, of or 400, I can't remember what the amount was, but we did FMS, foreign military sales, transactions yeah. to him where they paid us for weapon systems that don't help them fight China, even though that's the claim. Well, we also gifted them uh, Coast Guard vessels. Which they then have to staff and spend money on for maintenance. You can take it. You can disagree yeah. with it. I'm not going to like say you can't do that. That's valid. But uh, like it's a thought through position and it, it commits structural violence to a country that can't afford to be in this position. But yes, it, like yeah. I'm, I'm aware that it's on a like, this is not the vibe of like the CSISs who are on the Boeing well, and Lockheed team. Yeah, yeah. And look, I don't want to go on on this debate, uh, but you say the Philippines can't afford to go in this direction. At the same time, I think, you know, at this point, um, Philippines national security is definitely at stake. I don't think that's really debatable. You know, Chinese incursions in Philippine waters, you know, have deprived Filipino fishermen of their ability to fish. Uh, and without some domestic deterrent, uh, it, I don't see how the Philippines can continue to protect itself militarily uh, to the extent that it's able to fish within its own waters. Yeah, I'm not saying so, it's not um, a complicated issue, but... If they're a dictatorship, you don't sell them fucking weapons. It's that simple. Their national security is not the security of the nation. It's the security of the 40 families. Like national security doesn't benefit the mass if it's an oligarchy. If it's if you're 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 using national security as a misnomer to refer to the security of an elite system that's by and for elites. So there's a principle at stake here. If they're not a dictatorship, you can have those concept arguments about the balance of power. You can you can talk about national security and that kind of thing because it's servicing a democracy. And this doesn't mean don't have close ties to them. It doesn't mean don't help them. 
It means center the people, and that, that's all. So there's a limitation. I think treating this in the traditional way is how we end up aiding kleptocracy in the world, which harms us, net, net. Sure, sure. I would just say in the case of the Philippines, you know, I think the line between dictators and Democrats is, is a fuzzy one. Yep. Uh, so, you know, if this stuff took place under the Aquino administration uh, as part of the EDCA agreement, which was signed in 2014, um, I'm not sure how it would more equitably provide the solutions that you're looking for from U.S. policy perspectives, uh, just because he was seen as more of a champion of democracy and less of a dictator. Um, whereas, you know, Duterte had a popular uh, mandate. He was very popular uh, after several years in office because of his infrastructure spending and, and seen as sort of um, rightly or wrongly the uh, sort of political disruptor who was going to, you know, respond to the uh, poorer people's needs in the country. And then he did lots of extrajudicial killings and suppressed free speech, which meant we should have suspended oh. military assistance, right? Under the Leahy amendments, we were required to, mm -hmm. and we didn't. Yep. So, yeah. Anyway, it's the China prison, uh, you know, continually um, that's preventing us from being harsher to uh, dictators. Yes. Glad we solved that one. <laughs> it will be an interesting ride ahead. Yeah. All right. Time for Ask Me Anything, where people ask me anything. Okay. For Ask Me Anything this week, you've got five questions. The first one is from Gabe from San Francisco, who says, you had a cryptic tweet the other day saying, um, of a screenshot of a tweet saying, quote, never sign up to attend a protest. What do you make of that statement? Oh, yeah, that that tweet was viral. Like the, the woman who tweeted it, it, they went crazy. And a lot of people liked it. I mean, like hundreds of thousands of people, I think. And it strikes me that if you believe that you can't put your name on a list to join a protest, then you think we're already living in a fascist nightmare. Um, and I, there's a way in which America's fascist, but it's not to the degree there's, it's not, there's not, it's not black and white, first of all. So like, it's not to the degree that like, if you put your name on a protest list, you're fucked. Like that's not the world we live in yet. That's the world we can end up in, right? Like that's what we're that's what we're at what's at stake with Black Lives Matter, with overturning Roe versus Wade, with rigging of elect like this this stuff accumulates and we can get into a world where like we're all it is handmaid's tale and you can't put your name on a protest list, right? But we're just not there yet. And it's what freaks me out a little bit is that like hundreds of thousands of people jumped on this tweet to say, yeah, when and, and to do that indicates that they think we're already there. Um, and I would I would at least like to believe that we're not there yet, you know, um, and I, there's somebody made a comment, too, that it was overwhelmingly like young people, Gen Z, who were like all on this tweet, like loving it. And so like the, the argument was, or the, the subtext that the lady was talking about was, I don't know how old she is lady. I don't know what, it's, but the, she mentioned later that she was endorsing like flash mobs and black block, like basically like anti-fascist tactics and that stuff has its uses, but like, I don't know, you're going to like create strategic change that way or like transform politics like that and 
those tactics become like more necessary as fascism ratchets up. And so it's like, it just seems like we're not there yet. So like how you felt about the tweet was a referendum on what kind of world you think you're living in, I suppose. Cool. Next we have anonymous who says, would love it if you guys would talk a bit about prospect theory and the risks of nuclear war with Putin. Well, that's not going to be a quick one. <laughs> um, so I guess like the 30 second version prospect theory, um, you know, Daniel Kahneman, Amos Tversky won Nobel prize for this, I think in the seventies. And it was the concept. I, I actually teach it in security studies, but the concept is like, if a leader believes or a state believes that they are in a, a domain of losses, then they're more likely to take risks than if they were uh, in a domain of, of gains. Um, and everything hinges on like, well, what counts as being in a domain of gains versus losses? But the idea underlying it is just that we don't value what we have versus what we seek. We don't value those things equally. We value more what we already have and we value more not losing what we have compared to seeking out extra. And so the idea, like when you apply prospect theory to IR, is very much that like, if you have a leader who's in a losing position or in that domain of losses mindset, it means that it's extra dangerous because they're it's risky. They're willing to do like throw the dice kind of shit. And so you don't want um, leaders or enemies who are in that mindset because they're going to do things that break rationality and risk escalation. What I'm seeing from the U.S. intelligence community, the stuff that they're saying is that Putin is basically in a domain of losses right now because he's literally losing in Ukraine. His strategy is such as it is, is like backfiring. And there's not really any way out except up. And that's trouble for us and for him. The concern here is that if the intelligence community is assessing Putin's mindset correctly, prospect theory would tell us we're all fucked. And by fucked, I mean nuclear war. And they have a nuclear doctrine, Russia does, that insists on first use, escalating to nuclear use before your enemy does, if you think that you're going to lose a conflict, right? And that's basically what's happening in Ukraine. So like... There's a way in which the Russia-U.S. nuclear dyad is supposed to be stable, but if Putin's mindset as the decider for nuclear war is that like nuclear weapons use is the only prospect of him uh, recovering lost the lost campaign in Ukraine um, or keeping himself in power somehow, then we're so we're super fucked. He's obviously going to do that. He doesn't give a shit, you know. And he's, that seems like not a high likelihood of success, but if you're already going to lose, why not? You know? So I'm very, I'm like very worried about this. And part of it comes from my understanding actually of prospect theory. So that's that in a nutshell. Wow. That was a great little quick summary of it. <laughs> um, Trini, a grad student at Louisiana State says, love your show. I learned so much from it. But I'm wondering how often people on podcasts listen to podcasts. Do you have any recommendations? <laughs> I, th I feel like I've asked, been asked this question once upon a time. Um, I'll go through real quick. Just shows that are in my shit right now, like on my phone. What's Left of Philosophy, 
a world to win. Ben Burgess give them an argument. The moment with Brian Koppelman, who's the guy who wrote fucking Rounders, by the way, and Billions. Unclear and Present Danger with Jamel Bowie and John Gans. Block Party, which is a podcast that the Justice Democrats put out, but they like almost never update their episodes. Lawyers, Guns, and Money podcast. The People's Party with Talib Kweli. Um, this is Hell. You uh, listen to all of these? Yeah, but like not, I mean, just only when I'm driving or whatever. So like I've got a backlog of things I haven't listened to. Left Anchor, Ezra Klein Show, Hell in High Water with um, John Heilman, uh, Duck of Minerva Podcast, Nostalgia Trap, Seneca, The Goop Podcast with Gwyneth Paltrow. Um, but I don't really listen to it very often. Uh, <laughs> uh, History of Ideas, Talking Politics, The Dave Chang Show, Whiskey and IR Theory, Undiplomatic, Know Your Enemy really good podcast for like understanding the right um by leftists really good show armchair armchair expert with uh dex shepherd tim ferris show smodcast by kevin smith yeah that's about it script notes which is like a screenwriting podcast yeah that's it that's a lot of shit This week I've been listening to uh, a new or recent series by the History Channel about the Tulsa race riots or massacre of 1921, which is really well done. I highly recommend. Wait, what's it called? It's uh, it's called Blind Spot. It's produced by the History Channel. Hmm. Um, it's season two. The first season was about 9-11. I haven't listened to, but season two uh, is very good. I saw it recommended in some New York Times list of recent podcasts. Interesting, yeah. Also, shout out to uh, Dan Carlin, Hardcore History. Uh, I'm mm. a big fan of that one. Yeah. And the last mega series he did was on the rise of Imperial Japan in East Asia. I don't really listen to podcasts that much. I'm more of a YouTube kind of person. But other than like Critical Role, the D&D thing, I listened to um, Radio New Zealand's Redline series, which is about Chinese influence in New Zealand. And that was a really good mm. like four-part series. But yeah, I'm... I'm Podcast highlights I watch, but not really big episodes normally. The irony of a Gen Z targeted podcast is that Gen Z doesn't listen to podcasts. They just watch fucking ads I, I on YouTube. I listened to this one before I was on it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, I think I agree with Alex. Hey, I also listen to Critical Role. I have to edit NK News, so like I don't know if that counts as me oh, listening that's to right, it. Yeah. But I like... I feel like when I need to like switch off my brain because it's like, oh, it's a lot of politics, which is like not very academic of me to say i feel like the only thing i've seen recently was this one guy who like reviewed the entirety of like i don't know if like alex or celia have seen these shows but you know like iCarly and victoria's i just watched like eight i like, just listened to like eight hours of this guy critiquing this tv show what the yeah fuck? oh my god so, that's why i don't want to say anything i never even heard of it oh my god <laughs> okay you guys make me feel old all right next question um okay trini also says sorry one more question hip-hop do you listen to old school or are there any new rappers you like if you only listen to oldies why i mostly listen to the olds because it was just way better way way better the the style of beats after trap music became part of hip-hop like early 2000s the the way music started sounding was fucking glitchy and like I was on fucking 
like had ADHD or some shit. And then the mumble rap is fucking embarrassing because they're not saying they're literally not saying anything. Right. So that's all a bunch of fucking bullshit. Uh, and so like the old shit had messages in it. Like it was coming out of a, a, a particular place where everybody hadn't fucking sold out yet. Um, but the, in the new rap, like Spotify feeds me into my daily mixes, new shit based on what I like. Uh, and so like I discovered Polo G recently out of Chicago and he's fucking money. He murders it all the time. Um, and then juice world who apparently dead, but yeah. he's that, that album is fucking sick. God. Yeah. Yeah. I like how you consider like your music. You're like, yeah, these guys are oldies. <laughs> I've like, heard that when you consider them. Th- th- there's like the '90s <laughs> playlist on Spotify is called like Golden Oldies of Hip Hop or some shit, but it's oh, like shit. Tupac and Lupe Fiasco <laughs> and Jay Z, and I'm like, this, like what? The oldies are now mid 2000s. Yeah, like if it's 50 Cent, that's considered oldies. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, I feel like when they were having the uh, what's it called the NFL halftime show, you know, like Snoop Dogg and all that sort of thing. I just uh. saw some like younger people than me being like who are these guys and i'm like stop stop that's embarrassing (laughs) imagine not knowing snoop dogg at least come on yeah he's like a cultural figure at least absolutely killing the game yeah okay last question is a little bit more serious it's from anonymous and it says how do you evaluate what's going on in ukraine when it comes to military strategy you mentioned something a while back about power projection and the offense defense balance on twitter um, okay, so short version, I guess, is that one thing that the Russia's invasion of Ukraine is proving was that like when you were looking at the balance of forces, it obviously favored Russia. The problem and that Russia's running into is that it's fighting on it's an away game. Like it's it's foreign turf. Foreign turf always favors the defender. it's their territory. It's closer. They don't have to move logistics as far. They don't have to project power as far. Um, They, they know the terrain better. Uh, They have more resolve because it's their existence on the line. Right. So like offense, defense balance tilts toward deep tilts toward the defender, all else being equal most of the time. Um, But there's also like the, available technologies of the day affect the offense defense balance too right so we live in a world now this is like a weird thing that's like not resolved or it's still up for debate but we live in a world now that's awash in aerial surveillance basically cyber attacks and electronic warfare and missiles so like what does that terrain of like how how does that terrain tilt in relative to the offense defense balance right if it tilts toward offense then it's a world where uh you know revanchist great power like russia might have some serious advantages in doing blitzkrieg germany nazi germany type shit and going on the offense and trying to conquer quickly right but i suspect and i think this is what ukraine is showing us is that like well no the defender still has the advantage, right? Power projection has never been easy. Um, and that means that like, if you're a defender and if you're a small state, as long as you're defending things that are local to you, you're safer than you think from great power predation, 
I'm thinking specifically of like Australia and New Zealand and the Pacific Islands and even Japan, you know, like you're defending, you're defending your home turf against fears of like Chinese encroachment. Um, even a, a future Chinese boogeyman version of the PLA that doesn't quite exist yet. You have advantages and Ukraine is showing that like you maybe don't need to be super freaked out in arms race, you know, and the U S should recognize that too. The way we think about this stuff, we like build up China to be 10 feet tall and it's not, you know, and the things that we're trying to defend, we think about defending it from our position, which is superpower projection into Asia. But what about the local powers ability to defend, which is much greater than our ability to project power? So like if we were less egocentric about this and we thought more about like forward balancing and, uh, you know, the the front line states taking the burden of responsibility for their own defense, like shit might work out a lot more favorably. Conquest is a lot harder than, than I think we imagine. Uh, and so I, all of that is, you can stretch the analogy too far, but like all of that is being evidenced in Ukraine, I feel like. Um, and it's just a reminder of classical insight that like defense tends to have the advantage in, in these things. All right. It does help to be fighting 50 year old tech with, stuff the u.s military has barely been supplied yet yeah yeah no i knew that the u.s was like funneling you 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 know the u.s was providing them targeting intelligence when they were using like smart drone footage to show them blowing up like russian generals and shit it's like you think the ukrainians are doing that completely on their own like get the fuck out of here you know (laughs) that's another issue another reason why i'm afraid of nuclear war though (laughs) because we're obviously way more involved than like what we were initially claiming we were pretty comprehensive episode jesus all right gang that's gonna do it buymeacoffee.com slash undiplomatic to buy us coffees and cottonbureau.com search undiplomatic for the merch and we're on youtube search undiplomatic podcast and uh subscribe like all that good stuff all right catch you next time peace